Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A good day to you. You're watching CNN. I'm Richard Quest in New York. I'll have the latest on the war in Ukraine in just a moment. This morning, though, I want to start with what's happening in the financial markets and the weakness that we are seeing at the moment. U.S. futures are lower. And the significance, of course, is also on the Nasdaq, where you can see a loss of one and a half percent forecast. But this follows a very sharp fall on the highly valued tech stocks that were hammered in the Wednesday session. Now, Wednesday, the Nasdaq fell more than 3%. That is being reflected across European markets, which, as you can see there on the market, Paris off 2.5%, Frankfurt down 2.5%, London is off 2%. It is a massive repricing of risk on global stock markets as investors are slashing expectations for profitability in a world of slower growth and rising inflation. That's what we're talking about at the moment, rising inflation. We've got numbers on PPI, which is producer prices, wholesale. What we used to say is the price at the factory gate. Rahel is with me. Well, what did the numbers show this morning? Well, Richard, if markets were looking for some good news, hate to say it, but they didn't find it here. So PPI year over year came in at 11 percent. That was slightly cooler than the figure we saw the month prior, 11.2 percent. But prices still rose half a percent month over month. As one analyst told me, as one economist told me yesterday about the CPI report, uh, no upside to what we're seeing here. Uh, Dow futures were up about or lower by about 200 points before the numbers crossed, Richard. Uh, They then settled around 150 after these numbers. Cross. So uh, not great news in terms of this high inflation that we're seeing. We saw it yesterday with CPI. And we know that what we tend to see in PPI, the producer price index, tends to trickle down into consumer prices a few months later. So no good news to be had here, Richard. We shouldn't necessarily expect because the underlying fundamentals haven't changed. For example, the interest rates from the Fed haven't had a chance to work through. and We haven't had the most of them yet. Uh, Secondly, the war in Ukraine continues. Thirdly, energy prices remain still elevated. Uh, So companies are saying what? Well, that's the other thing. So Disney reported yesterday, right? Disney considered a top of the line, best in class American company. And the numbers were strong. It was uh, strong uh, additions to subscribers that came in at 137.7 million subscribers. Uh, Their parks business was strong. But here's what investors may be keying into. The CFO reported uh, that slowing growth may be on its way for streaming in the second half. Richard, it is this this warning about slowing growth that we are hearing Mm -hmm. more of. It, It almost feels like a whisper that's growing louder. 
In fact, B of A put out some research that said the mentions of weaker demand from companies is the most it's been since Q2 of 2020. You have higher inflation, and now you have companies starting to forecast and signal that demand may be softening later this year. It's not a great recipe, Richard. In fact, it, it could spell out a lot more pain. Lord. I, you know, we're just looking there at the, uh, at the price. Disney's share price was 180 back in May of last year on the back of Disney Plus. Now at 105. That more, hell, thank you. That graph, that chart very much tells the story. Rahel, we'll talk later. Because widely held stocks, particularly tech stocks, have plunged since the start of this year. It's a reassessment of risk. You see it very clearly. Amazon has now lost almost all its gains since the pandemic. Apple, which tends to buck the trend in a sense, down 17%. 5% alone went off the price on Wednesday. It's no longer the world's most valuable company. That now becomes Saudi Aramco. Perhaps not surprisingly, it's an oil company. It's worth $2.5 trillion, uh, with a market cap of 2.4. Uh, they'll battle that one backwards and forwards for the foreseeable future. Shares of Airbnb are down more than 25% in the last month, which is interesting, bearing in mind we're coming up to the summer and it's when people start planning and actually bookings are strong. So I spoke to the chief executive and asked him about the volatility. There's an old saying by a late economist, uh, I think his name was Benjamin Graham. He said, in the short run, a stock price is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. It goes up, it goes down. If you hold the stock long enough, the great companies will go up. But right now, it's a mood. And right now, the mood is soured. So I think that's the way it is right now. I think the highest growth companies are also sometimes the more speculative ones, and people don't want to take a lot of risk right now. And so I think that's what's happening in the market. But ultimately, as a CEO, I try to focus on things I can control. I certainly can't control the stock market. I can control the, I can control the performance of the company, and that's what we're focused on. Right, but when, for example, um, Uber's CEO, you may have seen the letter yes. that he wrote to the staff, basically saying that, uh, you know, the, the times are going to get tough. We've got to make money. There's got to be a return on capital. Right. And I'm old enough to remember the old days of path to profitability of the 1990s. Um, do you have to think the same things? There has to be a better business case. We already went through all that. In 2020, we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. We had to make painful decisions. We did a layoff, restructured our company. We rebuilt the company from the ground up. Then we took it public. In Q1, we did $1.2 billion of free cash flow. In Q1 is our low season. Most people aren't traveling between January and March. So though I can't speculate on what Q2, Q3 will be, you can look at our last year's financials to get a sense of what's gonna happen. So we are lean. We have 6,000 employees. We were very, very profitable from a free cash flow standpoint in Q1. We're feeling really good. And we are not pulling on the, on the brakes. We're stepping on the gas. So how does he step on the gas? You'll see the whole interview. It's in Quest Means Business later today. That's at 3 o'clock Eastern, of course, 8 o'clock UK, 9 on the continent. Our attention now, we turn to Russia's war in Ukraine. The leaders of Finland say their country must apply for NATO membership without delay. The Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov has denounced the move. He said Finland joining NATO would be a threat to Russia. The US, UK and other NATO allies have expressed support for Finland's potential membership. It's traditionally tried to stay neutral. The war has dramatically changed the country's view on Moscow. 
And so to new drone and satellite images showing the Ukrainian forces blowing up pontoon bridges in Luhansk. They did it twice in a 24-hour period. The goal, to keep Russians from crossing a key river. But Ukraine says Russian troops are making slow but steady advances in some areas of the east. And Ukraine is offering to release Russian prisoners of war. In exchange, it would be for the safe evacuation of the wounded Ukrainian soldiers at the bombed Asvatal steel plant in Mariupol. It follows the UN's warning that the civilian death toll in Mariupol is expected to be in the thousands. A lot there to digest. This morning, though, the main event, in a sense, is Finland's further moves towards NATO membership. Our international diplomatic editor is Nick Robertson. He's in the Finnish capital. He's in Helsinki uh, this morning. So, Nick, I guess at one level, it's not a surprise that the leadership has said this. Parliament will obviously now debate and vote. But essentially, it's a when, not if. It's a done deal. Uh, There is already a groundswell of public support, about 75% of the population estimated, according to local news organizations. And I spoke to the support NATO membership, and I spoke to a member of the uh, Prime Minister's party, a parliamentarian of some standing here, just yesterday. And he said, look, when it comes to a vote of 200 parliamentarians, we're expecting in excess of 180 to vote yes in favor of joining NATO. So this direction that's been set and given by the Prime Minister and the President in a joint statement that um, NATO will improve Finland's security, Finland will help strengthen NATO, um, that they should move without delay. This is is the signal. Um, They didn't want to have the debate be too long. They didn't want this period to be protracted because they don't want and are worried about threats from Russia and an escalation in tensions by Russia. But absolutely, today marks the day when we are just a couple of tiny steps away from Finland uh, making it official. Now, Russia has said that there will be consequences. If we take a look again at the map that shows this very long border that the country has with Russia, We know that one of the aspects could be, from the Russian side, boosting up the the, the number of troops that it keeps on that border. But of course, if it does that, it will have to come at the expense of elsewhere. What's the latest thinking, Nick, on what Russia's response will be? Yeah, there are two thoughts on that. One is the need to move fast now is because Russia does have its troops distracted and deployed in Ukraine and not along that border. Russia has said that it will um, monitor what Finland does. If it builds, if Finland builds more troops, more uh, military facilities along the border, then they will reciprocate. So that's the way they're framing it at the moment. Um, they have threatened to put nuclear weapons uh, on the edge of the Baltic Sea. That would be Kaliningrad. The assessment is... Russia has them there mm-hmm. already. The, the view from here is uh, that this is about, uh, and the president said this just yesterday, this is about Finland's security. Right. They don't feel secure with Russia right now. But this is not about an aggressive move against Russia. So the view from here is that they hope, they hope that Russia doesn't make escalatory moves. Uh, okay, but uh, Nick. And quite simply, they can't trust it not to. But Nick, isn't this exactly what Russia said the West did 
post-97 when all the other countries joined, thus creating what in Russia's view was um, was an instability and an insecurity. And whilst we could go backwards and forwards in a schoolboy argument of, well, you started it, no, you started it first, you start. The reality is Russia will regard this as being an instable and insecure. Yes, uh, they're going to regard it that way. Uh, and the question therefore becomes, what will Russia do about it? And part of the international message to Russia has been um, that your actions are triggering an equal and opposite reaction on the ground. You don't want NATO to come close, you attack Ukraine, and NATO puts more people on its border um, in the east because it, it's concerned about security because of your Russia's actions. Right. And, and that's what's occurring here. And, 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 it, and it is that message that it is hoped that this incumbent of the presidency of Russia gets the message. If not, um, a future generations of Russian leaders will understand that the kind of actions they're going through right now have reactions, whether or not they want it, irrespective of who made the first move. This is where things stand. This is, this is geopolitics. It's really that simple. That's the message. Nick Robertson in Helsinki, sir. Thank you. Ukraine's top prosecutor has announced the indictment of a Russian military commander for the killing of an unarmed Ukrainian civilian. The soldier is to be the first to stand trial for a war crime committed in Ukraine. CNN's senior national correspondent Sarah Seidner is with me from the capital, Kiev, and takes up the tale. Yeah, so we have obtained some video that shows murderous actions uh, by soldiers against two unarmed civilians. I want to warn you that the video you are about to see is disturbing, but this video is now being used as a part of an investigation into war crimes. This is a stark example of a potential war crime perpetrated by Russian forces, an example the world has not yet seen, Russian soldiers shooting two civilians in the back. CNN obtained the surveillance video taken from this vehicle dealership that sits along the main highway to Kyiv. The video is from the beginning of the war, as Russians tried and failed to shell their way to the capital. The fight along this road was clearly fierce. But what happened outside this business was not a battle between soldiers or even soldiers and armed civilians. It was a cowardly, cold-blooded killing of unarmed men by Russian forces. The soldiers show up and begin breaking in. Inside of a guard shack, two Ukrainian men prepare to meet them. We track down the men's identities. One is the owner of the business, whose family did not want him named. The other was hired to guard it. My father's name is Leonid Alexeyevich Platz. His daughter Yulia wanted the world to know his name and what the Russians did to him. Both civilians, both unarmed. We know this because the video shows them greeting and getting frisked by the Russian soldiers and then casually walking away. Neither seemed to suspect what was about to happen. That is what a member of the civilian fighting force who talked to the men a couple of days before the attack told CNN. He did not want to be identified for security reasons. We came there earlier, warned people to leave that place. We also hope for the humanity of Russian soldiers. But unfortunately, they have no humanity. You see the two men walking in the shadows toward the camera. Behind them, the soldiers they were just talking to emerge. A few more steps, and their bodies drop to the ground, 
Dust shoots up from the bullets hitting the pavement. The soldiers have opened fire. Minutes later, the guard, Leonid, gets up, limping but alive. He manages to get inside the guard booth to make a call to the local guys for help. This is one of those guys, a Ukrainian truck driver turned civilian soldier. First of all, we felt a big responsibility. We knew we should go there because a man needed our help. He was still alive. He's the commander of a ragtag team of civilians who took up arms to fight for Ukraine and tried to save the men. When the guard called them, he explained what transpired with the soldiers. He said the soldiers asked who they were and asked for cigarettes, then let them go before shooting them in the back. When his men finally got to Leonid, he had lost massive amounts of blood. One man from our group went there and the guy was still alive. He gave him bandages, tried to perform first aid, but the Russians started shooting. They tried to fight back, but were unsuccessful. They didn't have the firepower to save their countrymen. Yulia, have you seen the video? I can't watch it now. I will save it to the cloud and leave it for my grandchildren and children. They should know about this crime and always remember who our neighbors are. Her neighbors to the north, these Russian soldiers, showed just how callous they are, drinking, toasting one another and looting the place minutes after slaying the two men. What were the last words that you remember he said to you? Bye-bye, kisses, say hello to your boys. Her boys will be left with a terrible, lasting memory, the death of their grandfather now being investigated as a war crime by prosecutors. Sir, sir, we know, we know that war brings appalling things. I have a, one question. Yeah. Having watched that video and listened closely to your report, why? Why would they do it? You know, there can be a lot of speculation, but as we heard, uh, all that they were asked is, could they bum some cigarettes from these two civilians who they came upon and tried to take over their building? The civilians did not try to fight back. They did not have weapons on them. And the answer to why is a question, an answer I, I don't have, but I will say this. It appears that there was just an absolute disdain for human life and they just decided that they were going to take it that day for no good reason at all. Richard? Sarah Seidner, thank you. In the, in the awfulness of war, we can become very immune to these things, but it's important we don't. The stories making headlines around the world I want to bring to your attention. China's dismissing criticism from Western leaders after Hong Kong police arrested a 90-year-old former bishop who is an outspoken critic of communist, China's Communist Party. Cardinal Joseph Zen and three other well-known pro-democracy activists were arrested with him. They're out on bail. They're charged with colluding with foreign forces. If convicted, they could face life in prison. Thousands of people turned out in Ramallah to remember the Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akai, who was shot and killed whilst covering an Israeli military operation in the West Bank city of Jenin. The Palestinian Authority has rejected an Israeli offer for a joint investigation into the killing, saying it will investigate alone and share its findings with the international community. North Korea has publicly confirmed an outbreak of COVID-19 for the first time. Officials say they've detected the Omicron variant in Pyongyang after dubiously claiming for two years they were COVID-free. 
North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has ordered a strict nationwide lockdown with the distribution of medical supplies. Coming up, soaring inflation, market sell-offs and now fears of an all-out recession. Professor Rogoff will be with us. The Harvard economics professor joins me to try and put some interpretation into all of this. And later on, an unlikely place of refuge, I'll be talking to the boss of a winery in Moldova that's welcoming thousands of refugees from Ukraine. So welcome back. The markets will open in about eight minutes from now and the futures are pointing to a, a, a lower open. I don't really think we need to worry about the, uh, the, the Dow or the S&P as much as the Nasdaq because that's showing a loss of one and a half percent and the index is down 27 percent so far this year. We've got numbers on inflation which have come out. The factory gate wholesale inflation still at record highs. Year on year, 11 percent gain. So it's down just a tad from 11.2%. The issue, of course, is how much of that 11% passes on to consumers. Well, we know CPI is around 8.5%, which means both consumers are paying more and uh, producers are having to eat in the margins of their profitability as well. All of this are global concerns on the growth. The UK is reporting its economy contracted last month. The BOE, the Bank of England, has already said that Britain is on track for a recession. Ken Rogoff's with me, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Harvard. Now, Ken, we can have a sort of a, an academic discussion over whether or not there will be a technical recession in the United States or not. But that ignores the reality that we are in an environment of stagflation. Oh, it's an extremely difficult global situation. Uh, Richard, I was talking to a bunch of professional forecasters the other day, and one after another said they can't remember an environment where it was this uncertain. The lockdowns in China on top of an already fragile economy, war in Europe, galloping inflation in the United States. Uh, you have the makings of a perfect storm global recession. It's a risk. It's not a certainty, but it's a pretty scary risk. Okay, now, and into this maelstrom, we have the markets falling sharply, which in itself makes sense because, you know, they were overvalued. So you had froth off the top, but we actually have a major repricing of risk at the moment. Uh, no question about that, particularly with the tech stocks in the United States, which are exceptionally sensitive to interest rates. They've actually benefited incredibly from the trend decline in interest rates that instead of been going down for decades, on the way up, uh, they're, gonna, they're gonna really hurt. So yes, markets are, they should be thinking about risk. Uh, China was something everyone counted on. It would, they didn't even have a recession during the financial crisis, even during COVID in the first year they grew, but now we've learned they haven't grown out of it. So policymakers are focusing on inflation. Uh, I mean, we, again, we can have an academic argument of whether they are behind the curve and should have started moving late last year, but that's, that, that, that's a done deal now. Uh, in your view, is the right, at the moment, is the right focus to squeeze inflation out of the system, regardless of the collateral damage that's going to happen elsewhere? 
Absolutely not. I mean, and I think in the end, they're going to pull up short. It's true that if they wanted to really just wring inflation out of the system, and here we're talking especially about the United States, where the uh, particularly the last uh, year, year and a half, has just had too much stimulus too late. Uh, the inflation is just way too high. It's not getting under control. It would be nice to have it under control. But just how big a recession do you want to tolerate on top of so many other things? I suspect that they'll end up in two years having raised interest rates to three or three and a half percent. But the point is, it won't have been enough to stop inflation. It'll cool it off. But they won't want to you know, have an epic right. recession. I'm not even sure they can pull that off. OK, but but let's just take that. Let's say rates go, I mean, to three and a half to three and a quarter, three and a half percent. And inflation is tamed. So we get it down to five, four and a half, five percent mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. what, what do you do then? Do you continue pertinaciously for your uh, asymmetric two percent or do you basically say we'll live with this for the foreseeable? Well, I mean, if it's still up at 5%, uh, they're in deep, deep trouble. I think it'll be a little close, three and a half, four percent 4%. And I think they're gonna, what they're going to start saying is, well, we see it's going to be down at 2% in another couple of years, and we don't want to rush, and they'll you know, just push things back. It's a very difficult situation. Frankly, when if, if China right. keeps throwing out problem after problem, it's not easy to dig our way out of this. The, we, we said at the time that the the low interest rates <clears throat> were going to cause problems in the future because there wouldn't be any bullets left to fire if we got into a recession. We're not sort of in that situation, are we? We're actually about to have not a demand led recession uh, or even a supply. We're about to have a manufactured recession by higher interest rates. Well, it isn't just that. I mean, you know, it's what's going on everywhere. There's both a supply problem and a demand problem. The, the, let's, let's understand that when the Biden administration came in, uh, no one knew what to do. I'm not saying, you know, we know what should have been done. It's not clear. But now we know they were pouring buckets of fuel on the fire with these the inflation fire with these massive stimulus. And uh, that's really the situation we're in in the United States. And it just takes time to dig your way out. Professor, I'm grateful for you, sir. Thank you very much. Always good to see you. Uh, keep yourself well. Thank you. Good to see you, Richard. It is CNN. There is a great deal more. The market opens just about upon us in a moment. The horses are out of the gate and they're underway, as they say. We are well under 32,000 now and the market route continues. We're off half a percent, 141 or so on the early numbers, minute 40. And let's see how the trend develops. It'll be the sixth straight day of losses, but that doesn't really tell you the tell is the size of the losses that's disconcerting. Disney's a major drag. It's warning of slower growth ahead. Its shares are down by around 3%. And over on the Nasdaq, 
Well, the Nasdaq is falling more than 1%. The Nasdaq had been off 3% on Wednesday. So the triple stack will show that. And even as, even as I'm talking, you can see the losses are developing. The natural gas prices are jumping in Europe after Russia imposed sanctions on some energy companies. Ukraine has also stopped transporting Russian gas through a major pipeline. And oil is trading above $100 a barrel as the EU tries to ban Russian oil imports. Anna's with me in London. Anna Stewart, there are so many undercurrents here uh, that it's difficult to know where to prioritize because you have, as I see it, China buying less because of lockdown, Russia interfering in gas supplies, but at the same time, what? Well, at this point, having just got off the phone to Bruegel, it's a really worrying situation where we're seeing lots of little bits of disruption in different points. So whether it's the transit point suspended in Ukraine due to alleged Russian interference, whether it's the fact that Russia has issued some counter sanctions overnight, no gas now going through a Polish section of the Yamal pipeline, although it wasn't being used much anyway because they cut Poland off from Russian gas, whether it is this counter sanctions on German subsidiaries of Gazprom, that represents around 3% of Germany's Russian gas. They're looking for alternative supplies. But Richard, the big concern, speaking to Bruegel, isn't what's already happened, is what's potentially coming next. And that is those gas payments in, ruble, in rubles. Bulgaria, Poland refused to pay Russia rubles for gas. They got cut off next week. And the next week after that, right. that is when other European countries have to pay up. And on this question of sanctions... Listen to what Thierry Breton, the European Commissioner for the Internal Market, but obviously his finger very much on the pulse of what's happening, because I suggested to him that Europe was divided on the question of introducing sanctions for Russian oil. It's true that today for oil, we are very close. But again, we did this. We are a continent, you know, like the US, and we have to take care of everyone. And it's true that we have two countries which are 100% dependent on oil, uh, Russian oil. So we have to take care of them. In other words, if we make, if we apply these sanctions, we have also to propose alternative solutions to the one we need it. At the end of the day, the, I always come back to this basic fact, Anna. At the end of the day, a billion a day is going to Russia. Mm-hmm. 450 million euros every day from the EU going into Russian coffers. That's just for oil. Add another 400 million plus for gas as well. Everyone knows, the EU knows it's got to cut its reliance. But for countries like Hungary, and there are divisions in the EU, no matter what Mr. Breton says, they need to be compensated. They need better infrastructure. They need to know exactly where the oil and gas will come from, uh, how it will get to them. And right now, those solutions aren't there. But Richard, I think these countries, whether or not they issue an embargo, they have to prepare right now as if they are in an emergency, as if Russian energy has been cut off. And frankly, that might at this stage mean that people need to consume less energy so they have more for winter in case they, you know, there is a big shortage, a big fallout. Make, make hay while the sun shines or whatever that phrase is. Anna Stewart, grateful, thank you. The Japanese tech investor SoftBank says its funds racked up record losses last year, more than $27 billion dollars. Paula Monica is with me. How do you lose that much money? Yeah, 
uh, disaster for SoftBank, Richard. But you can lose that much money when you have bets on uh, a lot of tech stocks that have imploded, particularly Asian tech stocks. You look at the disastrous market debut of Didi, which was a big holding for SoftBank, the Chinese uh, ride-hailing firm, really struggling, uh, going to be moving off of uh, Wall Street exchanges. You have losses in companies like Grab and Coupang, and even larger, more established companies in China, like Alibaba, has really struggled this year in light of renewed worries about a COVID outbreak in China and just a broader meltdown in tech stock valuations. Investors are reevaluating how much these major tech companies, even the profitable ones, how much they really should be worth. Right. So so uh, just looking this morning, the market is open. The Nasdaq is sharply lower. It's down one and a half percent. I see Apple's off three percent. Amazon's down another one and a half percent. DD for what it's worth. I mean, you mentioned DD. It's barely a dollar fifty worth now, but it's still off two percent, which is the where is the thinking on where this ends? I don't know necessarily, Richard, if we have reached the end point of the selling yet. People talk about capitulation, the you know proverbial blood in the streets, and as bad as these uh, market uh, drops have been for big tech, you don't get the sense that the selling is going to end anytime soon, especially when you look at how investors are rotating their money. Right. They're taking profits from these big tech investments over the past decade, and they are seemingly putting it in cyclical areas of the market like oil. I mean, the energy sector has been by far the biggest winner on Wall Street this year. And uh, it seems like that's where the trend is right now. Sell tech, buy energy. Uh, Crypto. Um, I mean, the, the numbers are bad there. The num- I particularly say Bitcoin. We've been told the idea that Bitcoin is somehow a hedge against inflation seems to have gone out the window. Yeah, uh, Bitcoin clearly, Richard, is not turning out to be digital gold. Uh, gold is still the real thing, if you will. And the dollar has been spiking this year. That has hurt Bitcoin. And I think at the end of the day, people realize that Bitcoin is a highly skeptical asset, highly, uh, you know, asset that is a very uh, risky. And I think people are skeptical of this notion that they it can be digital gold. It doesn't really correlate with gold and other commodities as much as it does with tech stocks. And we've seen what's happened, obviously, with the Nasdaq. And Bitcoin, Ethereum, other cryptos are plunging as well. And what's really more alarming is that you have all of these stable coins, so-called stable coins that are pegged to the U.S. dollar that have also been starting to drop. You've seen this problem with a currency called Terra. My colleague Allison Morrow has a great explainer up on CNN Business right now about the problems with these stable coins. So there is a lot of turmoil in crypto right now. And I don't know where we hit bottom. Paul and Monica, I'm grateful, sir. Thank you. As we continue, you and I finding sanctuary where you might not expect it. A winery in Moldova is opening its doors to Ukrainian refugees. Nearly six million people have been forced from Ukraine since the beginning of the war. <clears throat> 
Many have headed to Poland, of course, and other neighbouring countries, such as Moldova. <clears throat> That's where thousands have been able to take refuge in uh, beautiful, at unlikely place, a winery. The Prokari Wineries is only a few miles from the border with Ukraine. It's opened its doors to more than 5,000 refugees since the invasion began. The Chateau has been producing wine for almost 200 years. It's won major medals from decanter and other international bodies. And it has produced what it calls a freedom blend following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014. It mixed great varieties from Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. The chief operating officer says it's his duty to help the people of Ukraine, calling them heroes. He's huge and commandant. He's joining me now from Moldova. So let's start with the, 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 the efforts that you're doing to, to help people to house refugees. How is it going? Hi, Richard, and uh, thanks for having me. Well, <clears throat> of course, from, you know, the morning of the 24th of February, when all this uh, situation started in Ukraine, all of us here in Moldova, we woke up, we looked at our phones, and we realized that there's a war in Ukraine right across the border. Um, we, the team at Purkari, of course, we had an uh, emergency meeting very early in the morning, and, uh, well, we put the the risk of the Russian troops invading Moldova aside, and we knew straight away that we we had to focus on uh, helping the right. Ukrainian refugees that are fleeing this this war. Uh, Chateau Purkari is uh, right next to the border, as you said. In fact, from the vineyards of Chateau Purkari, you can see the hills and uh, valleys of Ukraine. So, positioned very close to the border, we knew that we we had to we had to help. So straight away, we made a decision and we made it. Um, public through various Ukrainian um, uh, social media channels that the doors of Chateau Porcari are open to any refugee that seeks uh, shelter and, and accommodation. Uh, however, uh, you know, I hope everyone realizes that uh, we were within an hour, uh, the Chateau was fully booked. In fact, within, within a few hours, we were already improvising uh, beds in the restaurant area and um, right. conference uh, so, room. Yeah. So, so, so then from there, yeah. So, so you have these thousands of, of, of refugees. Um, to the extent that you're able, and not because of the refugees, I'm talking about the, the, just the situation generally, you talked about the Russian risk of invasion of Moldova. We know that there is already agitation by Russia. Uh, they're meddling uh, around Moldova. Do you fear that there will be, that Moldova's next? We cannot exclude the risk completely. But I personally do not fear, and so does the management and most of the people here in Moldova. Because if you look at uh, the Moldovan population, there hasn't been an, uh, an, an emigration from, from the country so far. Uh, and there's a few reasons why we believe it so. Um, the uh, neutrality of Moldova has been included in the Constitution in 1994. So, in fact, uh, Moldova would not, um, uh, would not be there to join any large alliance such as NATO. Then if we were to look even at the narrative that uh, the Russian regime uh, has used to invade Ukraine, it was the denazification and demilitarization. Well, we don't have any Nazi parties in Moldova and we may have some amazing wines, but we definitely do not have any tanks or heavy military equipment. So from that perspective, right. we believe that there shouldn't be a platform for Russia to enter Moldova. The, the Transnistrian region, that is something else. Because Transnistria has been a territory with Russian troops on it since 1992, um, right. and you mentioned 
yeah, you mentioned the 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 Purkari Freedom Blend wine that that we are that we've um, launched in 2014. After three countries, the post-Soviet Union countries have had to endure Russian aggression. It was Moldova in 1992 in Transnistria. Then in 2008 it was so Georgia. Yeah, and and then in 2014 Crimea and uh, Ukraine again in 2022. Right. So, so I just want to talk about your wine because obviously <clears throat> your ability to help others is dependent on your ability to sell your your splendid wines. We've been reading about them and they are well known and, and much loved. So do you expect with everything that's going on, will you get a good crop and will you be making a good wine this year? Well, look, Percari has been making great wines since 1827. In fact, already in 1878, uh, one of the flagship Negroti Porcari won the gold medal in Paris. So that was quite some time ago. We are certain on the quality of the wine that we make, but I want to make it clear that our support to the Ukrainian refugees is completely unconditional. So we were clear from the start that we mm -hmm. do not want to put any commercial aspect into the humanitarian uh, issue. So um, everything that we do for the Ukrainian refugees is... Um, totally unconditional. We are in the process of uh, creating the Purkari Foundation, um, which will help because we are a, a company uh, for profit. We're in fact a publicly listed company uh, listed on the Bucharest Stock Exchange. So it will help a company like us uh, to channel uh, funds because we have many uh, donors and many uh, parties that are willing to donate and they've seen everything that we've done for this uh, crisis, for helping the Ukrainian refugees. And that Purkari Foundation will help us in, in doing that. Excellent. Well, we look forward to, to getting a bottle or so of the wine and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a taste of it. Uh, thank you very much sir, uh, for, for joining us and for the excellent work that you're doing and, and for bringing us up to date. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Pleasure. The markets are open. The news is not particularly good. Uh, and the economic news in the United States on, and on inflation, that's not good either. We'll talk about it after the break. Welcome back. I need to check the markets with you, if you will. We are bouncing off the lows of the session. The Nasdaq still off around 1%. The trading is volatile. Uh, the, the, the reason, of course, is the numbers on inflation. This time it was wholesale inflation at the factory gate. And it's rising at a rate of 11% year over year last month. So the headlines marginally expect, they hadn't expected. It's close to record levels. It follows on from of course, the CPI number, which again, uncomfortably high would be the best phrase, which is what the markets are reacting to this morning. It means interest rates are going up and they're going to go up harder and faster than we, than perhaps they had feared or hoped. You've heard a lot about inflation this morning. Prices are driven up. Small, small businesses with tight margins will find themselves on the thin edge of the wedge. Core inflation in the US is at a 40-year high. And those rising costs, along with a shortage of skilled workers, could spell disaster. Vanessa Yurkovich has been looking into it. What is a French fry without a side of ketchup? Welcome, how are you? For Clota Lawless, owner of the Dearborn restaurant in Chicago, it's a huge cost savings. Say we do 200 covers and 100 of them want an extra ketchup. That's 20, 25 cents, which doesn't seem like a lot and multiply that by a week, by a year. 
Ketchup and nearly every other ingredient used at the Dearborn has become more expensive in the last year. Inflation is pushing meat prices up 13.9 percent, butter up 16 percent, and eggs up a whopping 22.6 percent. Big increases for small businesses. I thought at this stage that we would be in a better position financially, but it's been very difficult, mainly because of where we're at right now with inflation. But some good news, perhaps. Prices rose just 0.3% last month, and food prices rose less than 1%, with energy dropping 2.7%. But an 8.3% year-over-year inflation still stings. We're still reeling financially, to be honest, from the effects of being closed for on and off for two years during COVID. And despite a strong jobs report adding 428,000 jobs in April, small businesses lost 120,000 jobs. Even with restaurateurs like Lawless raising wages, it's often still not enough in the fierce competition for workers. We are seeing a lot of people starting with us for two or three days and then going somewhere else where they can get two and three dollars more an hour. Oh, that's awesome. Salon owner Michaela Blissett Williams isn't losing employees, but she can't find more. She's also trying not to pass her increased cost to customers just yet. What are you experiencing price increases on here as it relates to the salons? Oh, everything from gloves to foils, things that we need to do the service have definitely gone up. And now just with inflation, it's just some products are double digit. What does that mean for your bottom line? Less profitability. It's a catch-22. It's either less profitability or lose business. She's banking on inflation continuing to cool, especially as she renovates two of her salons. Construction costs are up 11.7% on average in the last year. Doubling the price of a renovation, not doing price increases, it eventually adds up and that's when it feels very overwhelming. Back in Chicago, Lawless says she's waiting to turn a profit again. With already slim margins, higher costs have made that an impossibility. I thought there was a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, and really it just depends on how long that tunnel is. Now, earlier I told you Apple had been overtaken as the world's most valuable company. Uh, that's around uh, Saudi Aramco that's now become that. But Apple is now facing an onslaught from its rival Google, and it's unveiled a slew of Google's a, a slew of products uh, that you didn't really even know I needed. There are three new smartphones, including two flagship devices, which are out later this year. Google also plans to roll out its first ever smartwatch, as well as a new tablet. Now, assuming all things go according to plan, and you like the look. There are just 227 shopping days to Christmas. Yes, I was the first person to mention Christmas and how many days we've got to go. But we've still got to get through the summer and, of course, a pretty awful market correction. That's it for the moment. Connect the World is next. I, of course, will have Quest Means Business five hours from now. Stay with CNN because the news never stops. Neither do we.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.